If you've watched any of the, um, the Euro 2012 football matches, which I'm sure some of you have, thank you for not uh, watching tonight and for coming out for church. Um, the thing I'm fascinated by is the fact that there are extra linesmen now. If you haven't watched it, then there are. You get basically two linesmen where they would normally be, and then you get two who cover the box at each end, and you still get the referee in the middle. Presumably the, the box next to the goal is where the action happens. It's where you need an extra pair of eyes to check what's going on. To check nothing's gone awry, just eavesdrop into pub conversations for the week to come and you will hear those questions. Had the ball crossed the line? Was it handball? Was it a foul? What really happened? Was it a goal? What's the truth? And yet you will also likely be aware that for our culture, truth now is more slippery than it used to be. Truth is a concept, it's unclear, it's blurry, it's vague. So it's fascinating that in some arenas, football at least, truth matters. People want to know what really happened, what the truth was. You see, what was once clearly objective truth in our culture, in our society, has slipped into the realms of subjective truth. Okay, they say, you believe that, but that's just true for you. It's not true for me, people say to us. So they say, well, you have your opinions about God, about the world, and that's fine, but please don't try and impose them upon me. They are your truths, not my truths, people say. It's famously typified through, um, throughout the world in, in religion and philosophy classrooms. Children are taught truth about God through a particular analogy, a particular picture that's become very famous now. And it goes like this, it says there are four blind men who discover an elephant. Since some men have never encountered an elephant before, they grope about seeking to understand, to to describe what it is they found. Uh, One grasps the trunk and concludes, well this is a snake. What we have here is definitely a snake. The other one finds an elephant's leg and says, no, 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 it's a tree. The third one finds the elephant's tail and says, no, no, it's a rope. We have a rope, definitely. And then the fourth one finds the elephant's side and says, no, no, it's a wall. I have a wall in front of me, I'm sure about that. Each in his blindness, describing the same thing, an elephant, and yet each one may be partially right, but everybody's wrong, describing the same thing in a radically different way. And so the story goes, well, well, that's what God is like. That's what religions are like, the world says. Although people don't know it, they're basically worshipping the same thing, but just from different angles. It's all an elephant, but you think it's a snake, you think it's a rope, you think it's a wall, you think it's a tree. And yet, of course, you try telling a Muslim that Allah is the Christian God who died on a cross. It's very offensive to their ears. For the Christian, at least, as we think about this elephant picture, this analogy that that is very often taught, I think there are two huge flaws. The first one is, no, notice who's right. Who's the only person who's right? Well, it's the narrator. The only one who is not in the dark. The only one who can see. Everybody else is blind. And yet, how does the narrator know that he's right? Where does his authority come from? How can we trust his take on reality? 
his take on world religions? Why should we believe him? Why should we listen to his voice? The second flaw, I think, in the analogy, at least for a Christian, is, well, what if the elephant talks? What if the elephant is not actually an elephant? What if it's a man? A man who can speak and say things like we read in our passage for this evening, verse 37. The reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. You see, here we have in our passage this Jesus, one who claims his very reason for being is to testify to truth. He's a king, he says. He's a king whose kingdom is defined by truth. His subjects listen to him because he speaks truth. A truth that impacts everything. That impacts the world. It strikes me as we look at these verses in the next half hour or so, it's an incredibly contemporary passage. A passage that we, we must wrestle with because it's a passage that will help us to understand why people uh, react the way they do uh, to us, to Jesus. At the heart of it, we get two very I think very common and very contemporary reactions to the idea of truth. Two different responses. And at the end of the day, we see truth being murdered. So our two points for tonight, verse 15 to 27, we see the murder of the truth due to prejudice, due to preconceptions. And then verse 28 to 40, we see the murder of truth due to, due to scepticism, due to cynicism. So firstly, verse 15 to 27, the murder of truth due to prejudice. The heart of the Gospel of John, when we see the reaction of the Jewish leaders to Jesus, we see their preconceptions and prejudice up close and personal. We'd be naive to think that these religious men would be the ones who ought to have spotted them. They were the ones who knew their scriptures. They were the ones who poured over the text. And it was them, though, who missed the real point of the words. They missed who the scriptures were about. You might remember if you were around back in October or November, we looked at chapter 5, those damning words from the lips of Jesus to the Jewish leaders. He said, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me. Yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And 13 chapters later, years later, we find not much has changed. Those who ought to see who he was, missed him completely. Those who should have known better end up killing him, murdering him. So just look firstly at the shape of the chapter with me. Chapter 8, verse 15 to 27, the first half of there shape of these verses, you've got 15 to 18 and 25 to 27 they sit together they sit together because that you are with Peter and the others in the courtyard there, we are outside and then in 19 to 24 we're with Jesus inside in this makeshift religious court upstairs in the high priest's house, we've got Peter either side and Jesus in the middle and in our culture the climax, the focus of a story is often the end. That's where it's all been leading to. That, that's where it's going. That's the focus. And yet, it, in the time when the, they were writing the Bible, 
the central bit was often the key bit. But John's wanting us to be drawn into the middle, to be astounded by the Jesus at the centre. And he does that not just by the structure of these verses, but by some amazing contrast as well. The people involved, their reactions, their priorities, couldn't be more different. So we find ourselves in the grounds of this Jewish high priest, a man named Anas, it seems. He is actually the father-in-law father of the, the true high priest, Caiaphas. And the historians would tell us that Anas was the former high priest. Caiaphas is the actual high priest. But Anas is, is the puppet master. He pulls the strings. And he wants the first bite of the cherry. He sees Jesus first and then Caiaphas has a go later on. Verse 24. We heard about Caiaphas last week if you were around. Um, remember, he was the one who had advised the Jewish leaders that it would be good if one man died for the people. We've got that back in chapter 11. Um, and uh, John was telling us, well, actually, there's more going on in the death of Jesus as we move to the cross. There's more going on because Caiaphas has said there's going to be some sort of sacrifice, some kind of substitution. And there's an irony because we are in the grounds of Caiaphas's house. And, and he is helping Jesus died for the people. It's that Caiaphas, it's his house. And we're going to start off outside in the courtyard, 15 to 18. Peter is there, Simon Peter, and John is there. I think that's who the other disciple is. You get that in verses 15 and 16. And Peter's there because John is there. John, it seems, is the kind of guy who knows people. He's the kind of guy who can get you close to where Jesus is. And so John heads in and gets Peter's name on the guest list, verse 16. And there we are, we're warming ourselves around the fire, huddling, keeping warm in the courtyard, verse 18. Keeping out the cold with the other servants, the, the officials, people are hanging around. And it's around this fire, on that night, that Peter disowns Jesus three times. Just as hours before, weeks before for us, though, he said he would. Chapter 13, Peter asked, Verse 37, Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. He disowns him first in verse 17. To this scary servant girl. Second in verse 25. So they ask him, you aren't one of his disciples too, are you? He denied it, saying, I'm not. And thirdly, then, verse 26 and 27. One of the high priest's servants, a relative of the man whose ear Peter had cut off, that was Malchus from last week, challenged him, didn't I see you with him in the garden? Again, Peter denied it. And at that moment, the rooster began to crow. Peter so easily undone. Earlier he said he had died for Jesus. And yet three simple questions from nobodies has meant that he has disowned the somebody. Peter's little gods of self-preservation, caring what others think, of respectability, of status, trumping with the God who made the universe. And then contrast that with inside. It's, it's certainly heated 
in verse 19 to 24, but it's not from a fire, it's this makeshift court. I love these verses. Jesus' response is extraordinary. He's outside, he's got Peter disowning Jesus. And inside, Jesus prepares to die for Peter. Outside, Peter is denying him. And inside, we'll see Jesus is protecting him. Let me read 19 to 24 again. Meanwhile, the high priest questioned Jesus about his disciples and his teaching. I've spoken openly to the world, Jesus replied. I always taught in synagogue or at the temple, where all the Jews come together. I said nothing in secret. Why question me? I asked those who heard me. Surely they know what I said. When Jesus said this, one of the officials nearby slapped him in the face. Is this the way you answer the high priest, he demanded? If I said something wrong, Jesus replied, testify as to what is wrong. But if I spoke the truth, why did you strike me? Then Anna sent him bound to Caiaphas, the high priest. So look, verse 19 there, he is under the spotlight because of his disciples and his teaching. And yet he only answers about his teaching. I'd never noticed that before. He's protecting his disciples again, I take it. We we shouldn't be surprised, we saw it last week. We looked back to his prayer to the Father in chapter 17 and we saw him seeking to protect his people. He loved his disciples. He longed that God will look after them and so he protects them again. So there's this huge contrast between Jesus in the middle verse 1924, and then Peter on the outside, the two sections in the courtyard. There's a contrast too between Jesus and his questioners inside. They are blinded by prejudice. I think that this meeting should never have been allowed to happen. At least four reasons why. The, the, the Jewish law at the time, that the Mishnah, as it was called, seems to have been put into a drawer and shut and locked. They're ignoring protocol. They've got the smell of blood. Truth doesn't matter. Truth is going to be murders. So four reasons why it shouldn't have taken place. Firstly, it was to happen in the day, and this was night time. Secondly, it couldn't be on the eve of the Sabbath. And this was... Thirdly, there must be hard evidence. And yet here is very simply rumour, gossip. And fourthly, it needed to be public. And this was very private. And that's a contrast in itself to the ministry of Jesus in 20 to 21, this, this private court as opposed to Jesus' public teaching. He says his ministry has been in public in synagogues at the temple where all the Jews come, come together. And obviously Jesus did teach his disciples in private. But his point is not that he's got a public face and a private face. It's that he has been consistent. What you see is what you get. And so verse 21, why question me? And they slap him well, it should have been that they, sh- they shouldn't be interrogating him. It should be witnesses they should be interrogating. Hopefully it's pretty clear that they don't want truth. They don't particularly care about justice. They're looking to kill him. They've been looking to kill him since chapter 5. And here it is. 
But when you want something so powerfully, you are utterly blinkered to this one thing that you want and you will do anything to get it. You will bend or you will break any rule for this thing to happen. And they want to kill him. And they will bend or they will break whatever they need to. They are, they're prejudiced. They've prejudged. They don't want justice. They want an execution. It strikes me that this, this passage says to us, be careful if you think you have truth. It's a clear warning to those who claim truth, and particularly to those who can be so blinkered that they're not willing to question or to be questioned. The religious court happened because they were prejudiced. We must take care as Christians not to be prejudiced. You see it all around you. When we, um, we lived in Birmingham before living in Oxford, and my tactic when talking to Jehovah's Witnesses, he, he did come fairly regularly, was essentially to encourage them to read the accounts of ex-Jehovah's Witnesses. People who had begun to question the faith that they had built their life upon. So, for example, there are some pretty key translation points in the New Testament, in John's Gospel, in fact, that, that basically Greek grammar scholars will say that they fudge and they get wrong. That's pushed their agenda. They mistranslate it. And so I'd say to these guys who come knock on our door, well, go read the websites. Go and explore, go and question, go and think, go and dialogue. I remember one parent particularly who came to my front door, there were two women. And one of them got very angry when I suggested, why not go and read some sites for some non, or from ex-Jehovah's Witnesses? I said, if your faith is true, it ought to stand up for scrutiny and for questioning. Read some of the accounts. But she was terrified, she was blinkered, she was quite angry with me for suggesting it. it seems that official church policy was to, to stay away from those websites. Stick your proverbial head in the proverbial sand. Her friend was thinking and was silent. Is it sensible to build your life upon something that you're not keen to test yourself? Can our prejudices blinker us? We see it in church. We see it perhaps where people can be bigoted or arrogant, particularly perhaps in, in evangelical churches, of which I consider this to be one. We might have our own prejudices that we mean we're often slow to, to really listen or engage with what people are saying to us, to, to seek to understand what people are saying to us. Often we're too quick to condemn. Of course we have to have an assurance of our faith, and we're to, to build upon that and yet a humility I wonder if also often I can be too Caiaphas like not really engaging with what people are saying I'm convinced that the Christian worldview is, is more than robust enough to take our questions but we mustn't be scared by our questions or by the questions that people bring to us you see it as well outside the church in the so-called tolerant society of which we live in are apart, the elephant narrative that says, well, of course, all religions are the same. You try and challenge that and you will see a prejudice that says all religions are the same. You see it in the rhetoric of some of the, the, the so-called new atheists. You see it in Dawkins, who famously says his aim is to kill religion. 
Or maybe it's just in the mouths of colleagues or neighbours or friends who say, well, well, we know the Bible is a load of rubbish. Or, or nothing you can say will persuade me otherwise. Take care that prejudices don't deafen us. Don't get in the way of truth. It's, we're not scared of those things. We're able to question. So, firstly then, the murder of truth due to prejudice. Secondly, the murder of truth due to scepticism. And I think this is a pretty common one, actually, in my experience. Perhaps as other people are incredibly anti or overtly hostile to us being Christians, it's simply an apathy to the concept of truth. Wow, can you really be sure of anything, they say? I mean, I admire your faith. I wish I had your kind of faith. But for me, I'm just not sure you can know anything nowadays. What is truth, they say to us? There's this scepticism, this cynicism. It means we almost always fall at the first person. Either that or simply people sit on the fence. They are pilot-like. We'd rather not have to make a decision about it, so I'll pass the buck and you see it with pilot as he scurries back and forth to the crowds. Not prepared to stand for anything. He seems to be the ultimate postmodern in verse 38. What is truth? Retorted Pilate. With this he went out again to the Jews, gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. What is truth? The Gentile leader asked the question. The Jewish leaders don't particularly care for an answer. They, verse 31, they brought Jesus to Pilate, presumably at some unearthly hour, because this cock has recently just crowed, morning time, still in his jammers. And then they drag him out of the palace, so they're not polluted by going into a, um, a Gentile place, so they can have the Passover meal later on. And for what reason, verse 31? We have no right to execute anyone, they objected. The reason is to kill him. They wanted to avoid him. That is their premeditated answer. That is where they want to go. And it seems clear as you read through that actually Pilate was convinced of Jesus' innocence. He knew this was no revolutionary plotting against the state. It was obvious to anyone that this man had never used a sword in his life. If he had been an anti-Roman subversive, there's no way the Jewish council would take him along to Rome. Presumably they would have pedestaled him. They would have crowned him. He didn't like Rome. Jesus' crime must have something to do with religion, not politics, Pilate knows. Verse 35. Am I a Jew? Pilate replied to Jesus. Your own people and chief priests hand you over to me. What is it that you've done? Are you the king of the Jews? He's already asked. And Jesus says, well, yes, but not in the way you think. I have a kingdom, but it's not a kingdom of this world. And Pilate's conclusion I find no basis for a charge against him. So then why does Jesus end up on a cross? Three times Pilate pronounces him not guilty, once this week, twice next week. Why does he end up on the cross? Well, from the people's perspective, from the leader's perspective, they want blood. But from Pilate's perspective, it seems that this cynical question, what is truth? I think lies at the heart of why Jesus gets killed. I think if he's lost confidence in the reality of truth, 
and then we've lost any hope in the reality of justice. One person put it like this, they said, A world without truth, I take it as in Pilate's mind, cannot distinguish between right and wrong. It's a world where political pragmatism triumphs over moral principles. So truth, insofar as the word meant anything for Pilate, was determined by sociological consensus. The crowds had voted for Barabbas, and so that was what mattered to Pilate. There is no truth for him beyond that. What is truth? Well, the art of politics, at least for Pilate, is to align yourself with the opinion of the majority. So from one angle, looking at this, this discussion, this court between Pilate and Jesus, you see that his actions grow out of his take on truth. Jesus dies because of Pilate's grasp of truth or the lack of reality of truth. And yet I think rather like last week, we can't say that Jesus just died because of Pilate's take on truth. I think there are hints that John leaves for us as we're confronted with the account of Jesus going to the cross. Jesus dies for other reasons. From one angle, it's Pilate's actions, it's the people's actions, it's the leaders. But from another, God is at work. In the midst of the mess, God is bringing about his purposes and his plans. And I want us to zoom in on two people as we finish. And the first one is to notice the part that Peter plays in the accounts that we've read. In one sense, he is very much there as the contrast to Jesus. He's there to show how brilliant Jesus is. He's there to challenge us. Because we see ourselves in the shoes of Peter, I'm sure. Jesus is strong in the face of adversity. Jesus is weak. So Peter is weak. Jesus is seeking to serve and protect his people. Peter serving and protecting himself. And yet the fact that we must not miss is that Jesus dies for people like Peter. That's the irony of the account. The very point when Peter is denying Jesus outside, inside Jesus, is being true to his mission and dying for a man like Peter. People like us. That's what he came for. That's who he came for. And yet the second person to zoom in on, so the first one is Peter, and notice that Jesus died for people like him, willingly. Yet the second one is a slightly enigmatic Barabbas. He just gets a little brief cameo role at the very end of the, the chapter. Pilate shouts, do you want me to release the king of the Jews? Verse 40, they shout back, no, not him, give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in an uprising. And in this we seem to have the cross in miniature. We have a guilty man who, justice says, ought to die, and yet he goes free. And we have an innocent man who, justice says, ought to go free, and yet he dies. It's turned on its head. That's what happens in a court where truth doesn't matter. Where truth is done away with, where scepticism rules. Where your political career matters more than justice. Now, of course, in our culture, Ideas of truth and sin and right and wrong are very much frowned upon. 
It's definitely not PC to talk of a just and holy God who is angry with sin. Particularly in a place where we don't talk of truth, then how can we talk of justice and holiness? And yet I wonder as we finish, how do you react to the sermon you've just heard? To the, to the passage we've just looked at in chapter 18, it's pretty easy, if you wouldn't call yourself a Christian, to react in one of the two ways that the passage actually models very well for us, to, to perhaps to associate yourself most with the people at Caiaphas' house, to let preconceptions, uh, preconceptions, prejudices take over and, and close off your mind to John chapter 18, or to associate with Pilate and to let cynicism and Skeptics say, well, truth doesn't matter that much. Doesn't really matter what I believe, does it? Can we have any confidence in truth? And yet, I take it John, who, who writes these words, would, would urge you to associate not with those at Caiaphas' house, or with Pilate, and actually with Peter, with Barabbas, to see something of your need of Jesus' death, to to see that the truth of the Bible's claim that we're actually all like Peter, we are self-centred, we're cowardly, we're, we're disappointing. Or to be like Barabbas, the one who is deserving of justice. Justice before a perfectly loving and holy God. And yet also like Barabbas in experiencing this swap with Jesus. Jesus dies instead of Barabbas and he experiences Roman justice. Jesus also dies instead of his people and he experiences the justice of the Father in our place. He, he dies the death that his people deserve. And so our guilt before God is taken away. As you read John 18, painful as it might be, align yourself with Peter, with Barabbas, not with Caiaphas or with Pilate.